The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, adult themes, and disturbing messages from the far right of politics. There is also a preamble, which starts now. Lockdown. Lockdown. It's the confinement of prisoners to their cells, typically in order to regain control during a riot, or a state of isolation or restricted access instituted as a security measure. So, using the word lockdown for restrictions during a pandemic is a new extension of meaning, and that's fine, language evolves, but it also means that there's no fixed meaning yet, which is why the endless parade of armchair fucking epidemiologists whinging about what is and isn't a lockdown is shitting me to tears. Just as I was finishing editing this podcast, some ca- some someone on Twitter. Yeah, sorry, I, I know there's some new listeners uh, to this episode, so I'll try to keep the language under control. Someone on Twitter who's not from Sydney was noting that Penrith in the west, far west of Sydney, might have to go into lockdown, and they whined that why is Penrith not in lockdown when regional areas regional areas are what that what that lovely person on Twitter didn't understand was that by lockdown, the original tweet meant the much tougher restrictions that are currently applying to a handful of local government areas in Sydney's west and southwest, like not even being able to leave that area, not the broad set of restrictions that have for the last six weeks applied to the entire greater Sydney area including Penrith. But that's okay, right? You know, don't bother finding out what the actual facts are. Just whine that that somewhere's not in lockdown and you aren't in lockdown and they're in lockdown and we don't. Oh, just shut the fuck up. You're not helping. Okay, that's... Um, sorry, that's... Um, uh, that's off my chest. Now, what this preamble was meant to be about uh, was that the next episode of this podcast will be looking at the pandemic and how we're we're dealing with it, how we're going, what might happen next. Joining me will be science communicator Upali Divisekra. You know her. She's been on the pod before. She's fabulous. Uh, and also Dr. Trent Yarwood, who is an infectious diseases physician. Yes, a, an actual doctor. Well, she says that. Anyway, uh, the three of us will be recording on Tuesday, and because I know there are a lot of questions about you know this virus thing and what might happen and some stuff generally, uh, if you're a supporter of the pod with trigger words or a conversation topic to throw into the mix, I will need them by lunchtime. Let's call it 1 p.m. on this Tuesday, the 10th of August. You know how to find me. Do it. Okay, um, I'm calm now. Everything's just fine. On, on with the show. Saturday, the 7th of August, 2021. The late winter series continues with technology journalist and disinformation analyst Ariel Bogle from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's International Cyber Policy Centre. What a mouthful that is. In this episode, we discuss Dan Andrews' back, imaginary bullfighting and the importance of internet content moderation. Moderation is everything at this point. If you create any kind of content online, you will have to come up with some moderation policy. We explore far-right political operators. Yeah, there's an interesting conversation being had by a lot of different academics, you know, and researchers and journalists around the weaponization of humour in the far-right. And we've got some tips for internet content creators. Extreme confrontations with police make for good content. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm Anti-Lockdown Freedom Nazis with Ariel Bogle.
Hundreds of protesters have taken to the streets of Melbourne, clashing with police over the state's sixth lockdown. This vision shows people, many maskless, marching down Flinders Street in the CBD just an hour before the new rules were enforced. Dozens of police can be seen trying to contain the crowd. Protesters were chanting for Premier Daniel Andrews to be sacked and to free Victoria. Last night, police took enforcement action against 31 people after hundreds of people engaged in an unlawful protest in the CBD last night following the announcement of the latest SNAP lockdown. The enforcement includes 15 arrests, two people for the indictable offences of breaching bail and stating false names, nine people were arrested to establish their identity so that uh, uh, fines in relation to breach of CHO directions could be issued. Uh, four people are also expected to be charged on summons in relation to breaching their bail, activating a flare and hindering police. So Greater Sydney is about to start week seven of its current COVID lockdown. Uh, that includes the Blue Mountains where I am, of course. Southeast Queensland's in lockdown. I won't go through all the rest. You know what your local rules are. Uh, Melbourne, though, started its sixth lockdown on Thursday night. And, of course, protesters were on the street immediately. Ariel Bogle, welcome to the evening. Hi, thanks for having me. Who are these people out demonstrating against the lockdown? It's a great question. I think, you know, it's hard to come up with some sort of singular theory of who they are and why they're there. I think we've seen this anti-lockdown movement grow since last year, since 2020, really spearheaded from Melbourne because, of course, Melbourne went through that really strict uh, second lockdown in mm, late mm. 2020. But it's grown, I guess, from a sort of core protest movement of a variety of different types of activists, some with sort of more conspiracy theory-minded uh, channels and things like that, into a broader movement. I think we still need to look a bit more deeply at how it's spreading, but certainly you can see plenty of anti-lockdown content and content also that encourages people to come out and protest on everything from encrypted chat apps like Telegram through to Instagram, Facebook events, Twitter. So, And then when you look at the faces of the people there, it's men and women, people from all kinds of backgrounds. So there's a lot going on there, I think. It's hard to just uh, you know, really put it in a nutshell. Well, I know, because last year, I think it was November-ish, we spoke with Cam Smith, Sexenheimer, about all of this, and there were all of the we've sworn oath to General uh, Flynn in the US somehow and the sovereign citizen movement who are just crazy. The footage of Melbourne from Thursday night, yeah, there were young families out together. Um, I saw like one Muslim woman with her husband and young kid in the crowd, there were a couple of people who looked more like your, your kind of biker, neo-Nazi types. And others, is there is there anyone you can kind of point to as where this starts from, where who the organisers are? Well, it's, com it's a complex. So when you're looking at, say, let's take Telegram, for example, if you're looking for content mm -hmm. that's promoting the protest, say, let's look at the July 24 protest, probably, because that was the biggest we've seen so far in cities like Sydney, especially. There's a, there's, you know, I've looked at more than 50 channels, you know, there's all kinds of channels there promoting the protest in different forms. If you look back at some of those channels that started in 2020, in Melbourne and kind of branched out, uh, created sort of copies of itself for, for Brisbane, for Sydney, for Perth. There was a core uh, group of protest organisers, I suppose. you might uh, There might be some familiar faces there from those Melbourne protests, uh, Thanos being one. Um, you might remember him mm -hmm. showing up on the steps, I think, of Melbourne Parliament. Uh, but it has grown since then. And I think what's also very interesting is the link-up between the Australian anti-lockdown movement and a kind of global push under this really broad, so broad as to be almost meaningless banner of a worldwide rally for freedom. And so far this year, there have been three worldwide rallies for freedom, uh, March in March, May, and most recently on July 24. So you're seeing a kind of crossover between Australian anti-lockdown groups and this global movement under these kind of really loose loose uh, 
sort of banners to which anybody <laughs> freedom freedom yeah. yeah i mean who doesn't want exactly. freedom exactly there's right? a lot there's a lot you can just slot your personal grievance or concern or worry under when it's just about freedom i mean i like freedom too <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and who can argue with it? But that's right. It's freedom from vaccination, freedom from lockdown, freedom from broad tyranny. The the cop we heard earlier in the grab, uh, Luke Cornelius, Assistant Commissioner for the Northwest uh, Metro Area in, in Melbourne, he says that their real concern is what, and this is a quote, a hardcore group of serial protesters who are coming out to protest not against the lockdown, but to be frank, he said, they're looking to pick a fight with the cops. Are you seeing that as a thing? Is that, I guess, well, what I'm I'm thinking when I when I hear something like that comment is there are people who want to make this a violent thing which supports the message of, see, the government's cracking down on us, they're suppressing us, we need to fight back. Is is that a thing, this kind of, you know, let's recruit more people by showing how violent the cops are? I, I mean, which they mm, are sometimes, obviously. Of course, but. of course. And, I mean, the, the use of violence by police against protests is not unique to these recent anti-lockdown protests uh, <sighs> Certainly at Invasion Day protests, Black Lives Matter protests, there have been similar sort of incidents. I think what's really interesting about this anti-lockdown movement too is the sort of minor celebrity it's creating for some of these people. And in some cases, there's so much content creation going on. There's live streaming from the protests. There's the sort of hero reel you make and post on your accounts afterwards. And in some cases, perhaps those more... uh, extreme confrontations with police make for good content that attracts... Oh, well, uh, a man in a yellow T-shirt um, and a police horse, for example, is... I mean, it's a striking bit of photojournalism, but that guy clearly is becoming a hero, even though he's been charged. Yes, there's always... Now he's a martyr, Yeah, I desires guess. for... I mean, all kinds of uh, movements always love a hero or a martyr. You might look at similar... Uh, the sort of similar phenomenon coming out of the January 6th capital invasion where a number of people that died in in that riot, invasion, uh, insurrection, whatever you'd like to call it, have become martyrs for the far right. So it's sort of a similar phenomenon, certainly not unique. Is there a connection between uh, these protests in Australia and the far right in the US? Well, I think this is something, I think we're still sort of unspooling this. There's a lot There's a lot of factors at play here, and I certainly don't want to say that these recent anti-lockdown protests are far-right protests. I mean, of course, there's going to be some elements of that, but I don't think you can call it a far-right protest if you're just going to put a banner over the top of everything. Uh, I suppose that it has been for a long time now, and perhaps, I mean, the far right in Australia and the far right overseas have always maintained like different forms of connection throughout the decades. There's plenty of uh, academic literature about that. And these online platforms certainly make it quite easy for content to sort of cross over. So if you're looking at some of the anti-lockdown groups, uh, especially those associated with the kind of name Freedom Rally, there's certainly content being forwarded by all kinds of groups. I mean, I was looking at some of these groups and in July, in earlier in the year, perhaps in January and February, lists of kind of freedom accounts would be promoted into these groups as accounts people might like to follow. And those did include uh, a range of uh, far-right publications, uh, plenty of Australian ones, and then also some accounts associated with the Proud Boys, Australian Proud Boys groups. And, of course, uh, you can we can debate about who the Proud Boys are here in Australia, what kind of characteristics they have, but certainly that's an offshoot of an American group that has been designated a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Centre. You know, whether or not that designation is relevant here is another question, but these are the kind of connections Mm. and uh, the sort of mechanisms that allow easy content cross-posting and promotion on apps like Telegram, Facebook and the rest really allow these kinds of things to evolve quickly. Yeah, we'll certainly look at the, the kind of content moderation issues, I think, in a little while. The Proud Boys, though, that strikes me. I mean, the name Proud Boys is such an American name, but we do have our own, you know, proper homegrown far-right groups with with a heritage going back 
decades. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Australia has unfortunately always had that kind of element uh, that's kind of, I guess, the, the groups have risen and fallen, you know, collapsed via infighting. There have been a number of arrests. I, I guess I would be of the mind, and I know there are other people who believe this too, that Australia does, is not very good at examining this part of itself. We don't really track hate crimes or hate incidents well here. Um, of course, a lot of crimes that maybe would have been designated hate crimes in the United States with a different kind of legal system and different legislation might get a different kind of charge here, maybe just an assault charge or something like that. So I think we don't really mm. quite understand well uh, the rate of far sort of far-right or hate-related incidents here in Australia or the prevalence of groups, although there are a lot of people doing great work to try and uh, measure that and dig it up. There certainly are, and uh, I should really uh, do an episode of this podcast on the far-right in Australia. I mean, it really goes back to the the 1930s and the New Guard and the White Army and all of them. Uh, But until then, um, just the Wikipedia article, Far-Right Politics in Australia, is um, an excellent place to start. Back to Victoria for a moment, though. Victoria's opposition is pushing for answers over the incident that has left Premier Daniel Andrews off work since March. Shadow Treasurer Louise Staley listed 12 questions, including who was present when he was injured and whether he was questioned by police. I think there are there are questions that probably need to be answered. Just uh, it's extraordinary to have a leader of a state to have been away from office for such a long period of time. In response, the government reiterated the Premier slipped on a step and an ambulance was called to take him to hospital. Mr Andrews is due back at work later this month. So Premier Dan Andrews, he suffers a serious back injury, he's off work for months, and yet there's a conspiracy theory that it was it was all fake. Where did this come from? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. I, I mean, it had been bubbling along for a while. I think it really blew up. Uh, maybe back in June, when a Liberal MP in Victoria, Louise Staley, issued a list of sort of mysterious questions that alluded in a dark sort of ominous way to a potential cover-up and to how Dan Andrews hurt his back. I mean, but they had been bubbling along for quite a while and I, I'm still, I still want to know just who wrote that list of questions, how and why Louise Staley decided to publish that ominous little list of questions. But certainly ever since it had been announced, his injury had been announced in March, immediately in the plenty of his anti-lockdown groups actually as well, but a lot of the groups that had been protesting uh, sort of strict pandemic uh, uh, system, I suppose, going on in Victoria, immediately started speculating wildly. And I, when I dug into this for The Guardian, I did come across a conspiracy theory website uh, that seemed to have played a pretty significant role in all this. It published a sort of steady drumbeat of speculation about Andrew's fall and you could certainly see links to that website spreading across Telegram, onto Facebook, onto Twitter. Of course, the issue here is that people were sharing it both because they kind of wanted to believe it maybe but also plenty of people shared it only to denounce it, which is another issue with um, how content content, um, travels these days. But, yeah, it was a really interesting one. And I argued too, I think it's an interesting um, phenomenon, really popularised by Kate Starbird, who's an academic in the United States. Um, She calls it a a model of kind of participatory disinformation. So it's not that disinformation just comes from the top down or from the bottom up. It kind of lives in a cycle. So you might see she looked at um, the Stop the Steal protests in the United States, for example. So about the, about the election, about the fact that, uh, yep. well, about the claim that Trump had in fact won the election and the election was stolen mm-hmm. from him by, I don't know, Forces. Pick, pick your force. Yes. <laughs> by pick. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes. So she was looking at how people who were sympathetic to that view were kind of primed for it by Trump and his allies and by friendly media in the lead up to the election. So they became to expect voter fraud. And so they went out looking for examples of it. So there was plenty of like evidence, quote unquote, of voter fraud that was created by these audiences 
Uh, one example might be Sharpiegate. That was the claim that ballots filled out with felt tip pens uh, couldn't be read by vote scanning machines. And that was seems to have emerged from a local Arizona Facebook group and then spread across the country through the media, through kind of popular influences on social media, up to kind of Trump and his children and then back down again. So it's an interesting cycle. And I thought that Dan Andrews situation kind of mirrored that because there was this discourse between an MP in Victoria and the population who was primed to believe uh, a fraud about Dan Andrews and they sort of supported each other and created this cycle. So certainly um, an, an interesting way to put it that Kate Starbird has come up with there. That idea of an audience primed for a belief fascinates me and this is something I've I, I haven't warned you about, but it's a story from my past, something I, I know about. Back in 1984 in uh, Adelaide, um, Adelaide had just got the rights to run the Formula One Grand Prix for five years, starting in 1985. So a group, well, two guys really, who worked at uh, the radio station then was called 5KA. It's now 5AA after many ownership changes. They sent out a faxed press release, because that was the day, 1984, uh, to all of the media from the Australian Bullfighting Federation saying that Adelaide had won the rights for the first world international bullfighting championships which would be kicking off and that went out to all the media breakfast radio ran it it then went through the morning talk back shows of course the horrible cruel sport of of bullfighting by two o'clock there were questions in state parliament and the premier had to denounce the whole thing because people believed that there would be sport, because they, they wanted to be outraged, I think. But also, if a single person had phoned the phone number for more information that was on the facts, that phone would have been answered 5KA News. And yet no one did. It was. <laughs> it is really easy to spread disinformation, even then, and, and like it's easier now. Yes, I mean, this is one of the arguments, right, that the social, these social media platforms that we spend so much of our time on now, it's not just the scale and the ability to connect between people, it's also the speed at which that can happen. But I think we need to be honest about ourselves. There's all kinds of um, dispositions we have to certain kind of contents and kind of framing, if you think especially mm-hmm. about health misinformation, Uh, When I was at the ABC last year, we did a lot of reporting, of course, about COVID-19 misinformation. And when you spoke to people about, say, why they'd shared a post that said something like, oh, you know, if you keep your throat moist all the time, COVID won't be able to get in there. You know, there was all kinds of like stuff like this being spread, especially Mm. at the beginning of 2020. And if you ask them, why did you know that was right? Like, why did you share that? They would often be like, well, I didn't know it was right but it sounded right enough and I thought I'd share it because I want my friends and family to be safe. And so if this works, that's good, and I've kept my friends and family safe. If it doesn't, they couldn't really see the harm in it. I think there's plenty of things I think about myself or some of my beliefs about health that are probably inherited from my parents that have ne- I've never tested <laughs> Scientifically, well, I was going to say these are these are you know, folk exactly, remedies, yeah. uh, old wives' tales, as it used to be called. But yeah, folk remedies. It's like yeah, honey, honey, and lemon juice for the common exactly, cold. Yeah, cold I showers mean, are good maybe for you. Not, maybe, yeah. maybe not. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. You feel perked up and energetic after a cold exactly. shower because your body wants to generate heat. I don't know. Well, yeah, and and as you say. That one, what's the harm in it? You know, keeping your throat moist is not going to cause any problems, probably. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But don't do that. This is not medical advice. Now, look, you did say you're at the ABC, and that's where I know you from when you were science and tech reporter for the ABC and you covered the cybers and I'm doing that still. You are now with ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, their International Cyber Policy Centre. How... 
how and why did this change come about? Because I understand you intend to go back to the ABC after a period. Yeah, so I'm technically on leave from the ABC and I'm an analyst here at the Cyber Policy Centre and I'm here working largely with a kind of team of researchers who look mostly at disinformation, online information operations and things like that. Uh, and I guess... Mm. Some great work coming out of ASPE on this, I must oh, thank say. thank you. Including your own, yes. Yes, well, yeah. So it just seemed like a good opportunity to learn some new skills, I guess, in a nutshell. I'd been covering disinformation and sort of the online culture online, the way information travels online, how campaigns and audiences are built at the ABC during COVID, of course, but maybe, you know, also back into 2019, the election then, we did, I was part of an election tracking project the ABC ran, looking at how... Uh, political campaigns play out online, trying to sort of dig out some of the weirder election-related content that was being spread and things like that. So this chance came up uh, to sort of build out some of my more technical skills and just do a deeper dive, I guess, on the research. So that's what's going on. And why has disinformation become personally interesting for you? That's a great question and I didn't think about that. I guess at, at its heart it's about people and motivations and that's just so endlessly fascinating I just find it so interesting mm. firstly how how and why people share information the kind of communities and relationships they build with each other it's just so interesting to see interesting and bad to see how that can be manipulated mm. by political parties countries people grifters you know the whole range it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's just so interesting and, it, and it's so changeable too, I think. No campaign, I mean, of course, the techniques of disinformation and propaganda are replicated and shared, but no one campaign is exactly the same as another, so I just find it really interesting. When I, like, typed that question out, I thought, gee, how would I answer that? <laughs> yeah. um, and it was a theme that, has run through some of my thinking, gee, for probably more than a decade now, which is about how the internet changes the world. Mm. And I, I use the phrase very simply, information is power and the online world is changing the pipes, the plumbing, the way that that information is distributed and processed and absorbed. So if you are re-plumbing how information flows, then you are re-plumbing how power flows yeah and I agree with that. yeah so it's 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 something alvin toffler said in his book the third wave all of the the, the industrial age stuff uh and power projection was how far can you take a company of soldiers by train in one day if a problem rises up and he said and that's the size of a nation state and now we have global power structures which have evolved for through electronic communications and travel and all of those things. But now we're, we're, we're coming into this new information-based power projection and, you know, old media players aren't necessarily as powerful as before and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that – hey, if this is, this is both important and fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I do think sometimes that – we we do kind of as a culture, or especially as like people working in media, people working in kind of research spaces, can get pretty caught up with the you know sort of the flavor of the month. And there is an element to this kind of disinformation being the flavor of the month. Everyone wants to find, everyone thinks a disinformation mm. campaign under is it under every corner, you know, around every corner rather, or that you know uh, it's Russia is everything. Yep, it's Russia. It's Russia again. Um, so wow. yes, it's always <laughs> Russia. Oh, you're at you're at Aspie, so it's always China. It's always China. As my you know, tells me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's China. I mean, the, the Aspie has a focus on China for strategic reasons, and fair enough. That is a thing Australia has to think about. I think I'll take a break there and do the housekeeping. Well, dear listener, yes. Quite a bit of housekeeping this time because quite a lot is coming 
up. Let me tell you something I'm really looking forward to. Uh, in a couple of weeks' time, uh, we're recording on the 24th of August, Dr. Liz Buchanan. She is a specialist in the geopolitics of the Arctic and Antarctic and also Russian foreign energy strategy. She's from the Department of Defence's Australian War College in Canberra. She also lectures at you know West Point War College in the United States. We are going to be talking about Australia and Antarctica, and I'm also going to sneak in some questions about the Arctic and the whole how the new Cold War that we seem to be having like, like relates to that. That's going to be absolutely fascinating. That's coming up. Then, uh, as I mentioned up the front of the pod, uh, this week, it's just a few days' time, Dr. Trent Yarwood and Upali Divisekra on the pandemic, on science, on medicine. If you have trigger words and conversation topics for that, and I bet you do, I need them by 1pm this Tuesday, the 10th of August. Is recording that we're recording that afternoon. So get them in. I really want to. Oh, yeah, send me your reckons. You know, I'm sick of reckons in, you know, I reckon we should do this. I reckon we should do that. But like, let's, let's talk the COVIDs. That Trent Yarwood. Upali Divisekra this Tuesday. Get your things in Tuesday morning. And then coming up, I've decided... Now, you know how I promised that the sixth podcast had to be something a bit special? Well, I've decided that the this late winter series will end on the actual end of winter, Tuesday the 31st of August, and I will live stream the recording of the podcast. How's that? I, I don't know who's on. Maybe it'll just be me. Maybe it'll just be me taking a quiz. I don't know. I haven't worked out the details, but that will be on the evening of Tuesday, the 31st of August, uh, probably starting before 9pm, because, oh, you know, excuse me, many of you are family people and have to have early nights, all of that. Some of us are getting a bit old. Anyway, th- you can look forward to that coming up. The podcast is, of course, made possible by you, the generous listener. Uh, And for this episode, I want to say a big huggy thank you to Jono Ferguson, who renewed his Edict 03 Cheeky Red annual subscription uh, this week, last week, whenever it was. And also to Simon Harris. Uh, So Jono and Simon, thanks very much for your continuing support. And of course, it's thank you to everyone who supported the 9pm Late Winter Series 2021 crowdfunding campaign in July. I won't list you all this time. Just know that I love you. Just know that if you have uh, trigger words or conversation topics, do send them in. I'll be doing a, a couple with Ariel in a moment. Uh, and, and if you would like to contribute to the podcast in some way, the like the easy thing to do is just please tell people uh, about it. Just say, hey, listen to this. The more listeners, the better. And I like and subscribe and leave a review and all that shit, you know, whatever. I, I honestly don't know how much difference that makes. What does make a difference is people listening. The more people that listen, the, the more worthwhile it makes the whole project. But, of course, you can just, you know, I'm not going to stop you giving me a tip. Far from it, dear listener. I am not going to stop you giving me a tip. Go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. The 9pmedic.com slash tip. Chuck in a few dollars if you can. Uh, or, or click through to where it says subscribe. And that just makes the whole thing regular and automatic. And you don't have to think about it anymore. And and these days, isn't completely thoughtless, thinkless progress what society is about? So you should do that, definitely. <laughs> Trigger word time. Now, Ariel, people who support this podcast uh, to a certain level can buy trigger words to throw into the conversation. I have here the Uh glass jar of transparency, which, as you can see, is a bit sort of grubby at the moment, but I am pulling out a random piece of paper, unfolding it, this is from Sheepy, who uh, is a regular supporter. Thank you, Sheepy. Blast. 
Blast. Blast. I'm just thinking of really horrible things, to be honest. I was thinking about, because it is, I believe, the anniversary of the blast in Lebanon, in Beirut. It is. And the city's still in recovery. Yep, and it is, as we record this on the 6th of August, the anniversary of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Absolutely, yes. Two awful things. Which inc- changed the what Now, you have been writing about cybers, when I think. So, cyber war. Let's talk about <laughs> the cybers because nuclear war was the thing and then we have all of those phrases like cyber Pearl Harbor. Uh, Greg yes. Austin at – is he at ANU or UNS, NSW? ANSW. Either way, in Canberra, Greg Austin has used the word cyber blitzkrieg because oh. uh, because he talks looks at it in a combined arms kind of way. How? What is your position on cyber? Generally? <laughs> oh, I love cyber. No. <laughs> um, I do. It is some a, a word. If we just look at it as a word that often makes me chuckle because it is just attached to absolutely everything and is Mm -hmm. thus sort of rendered meaningless um, very often. (laughs) Cyber. I guess I I mean just to spin it off into another direction which I have I mean you do work at a cyber policy centre. Let's be clear here. (laughs) Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) But, you know, cyber Pearl Harbor, cyber, you know, it just gets – you just attach cyber to it, and I guess people think it attracts money and attention, which often it does. Um, the, I guess I'm, I've been thinking about cyber security reporting and things here in Australia, and, and what a shame it is that um, there are so few. Mm. Like there have been, a, you know, a lot of really great people like yourself doing reporting around these areas, but uh, okay. a lot of the sort of major major broadcasters and news outlets really still continue to leave a big gap in reporting on that topic, at least as, come, as far as their specialised reporting on it. So I mean, that was a tangent. No, it, no, that's a good I was tangent. thinking about that lately. You're, you're, no, no, you're right. And it's still seen as something that happens over there. We still have yes. a – I mean, and one of my frustrations was reporting on things on the internet more generally is – on the internet is actually everyone now. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's it's not like saying people on the internet are saying. It's, no, no, people are saying. Yeah. We're, everyone's there. Um, and that really doesn't narrow it down enough. And the old days of doing Vox Pop recording, I mean, when you actually had to go out and do it physically, there was a context. You're talking to people in George Street, Sydney, or down at the wharves because it was about laborers or something like that uh now it's just it's just people commenters on the internet yeah yeah a bit lazy no it's a shame because i think uh there's a of course like every element everyone's beat links up with the cyber in some way whether Mm. it be health politics and all the rest it would be i think really good for australian news outlets to recognize that a bit more help support and train their reporters into understanding like the the dynamics of how the stories travel online or, you know, if you're a health reporter these days, you probably should be on top of cybersecurity around health records or uh, the ability oh. to shut down a hospital through a denial of service attack or a ransomware attack rather, um, you know, mm. all these kinds of things that are so important but kind of are still, yeah, we're still not quite on top of here in Australia, I don't think. Uh, we're certainly... We're certainly lagging, and it is a shame that, that the numbers of, of people covering the cybers has has declined. Um, maybe that's a thing for another time. Let's see if there's a happier word in here. I'm going to pull another one out. This Doing two seems nice. Uh, this one. This is from Mick Fong up, uh, up in the area of Broome and, and the like. Uh, tourist. Tourist. He says, tourist. Well, I won't be a tourist uh, probably for a long time because <laughs> no, it looks like we'll never no. be able to leave wherever we're living in Australia. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I know. Has, has travel been a big thing for you? Um, yeah, well, I have family overseas, you know, so I have been a regular traveller for that reason. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I was a bit of a traveller, but not right now. Mm, I know. I, I, will, I will think of... 
there's something in the back of my head that I wanted to say about this, but I'll, I'll drop that in later. So Mick, keep listening. Oh, no, you'll keep listening anyway. Um, but I will say something about that uh, a bit later. Thank you to everyone for those trigger words. And now a few words from Sky News Australia's Professor Andrew Bolt. We all know that the social media giants, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Google, they all lean to the left. They banned US President Donald Trump, for instance, banned him from tweeting or posting YouTube clips, but did not ban the unelected supreme leader of fascist Iran, even when he incited war against Israel this year, urging Palestinian fighters, actually terrorists, to continue what he called their morally correct fight against the usurping regime. Khamenei even has his own YouTube t- channel, so no problem with him. But with Sky News, well, YouTube reckons it's our turn now to be censored. YouTube, for some reason, decided to draw back in our huge library of videos. We posted 20,000 of them in the past year to find ones that it didn't like, that discussed how best to fight this virus. And it said, aha, we at YouTube don't like about a dozen or so of these videos, videos all but one from way back last year. And it's now suspended Sky News for a week. I mean, seriously. Now, naturally, news outlets of the left have just cock a hoop that we're blocked from posting on a hugely successful YouTube channel, more successful than theirs. And the ABC in particular is beside itself, celebrity journalists there, one after the other, saying, you know, oh, Sky News finally being punished for spreading disinformation, which is a bit rich from the ABC, which is happily spread disinformation. Like, you know, painting the innocent Cardinal George Pell as a pedophile, uh, falsely claiming the Great Barrier Reef is at death's door, <laughs> amazingly claiming that Professor Bruce Pascoe is a real Aboriginal. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I think we can skip over uh, Professor Bolt's obsession with defending Cardinal Pell and his obsession with attacking people for not being sufficiently Aboriginal for his liking. The YouTube ban itself, Ariel, what happened to Sky News Australia this week? So earlier this week, we it was reported, I suppose, that uh, Sky was under a seven-day ban. They couldn't upload new content to their YouTube channel because apparently they'd fallen afoul of YouTube's policy about COVID-19 health misinformation. So the, the difficulty here is that you, both YouTube and Sky have not been completely up front about what exactly the videos were that crossed the line. They haven't provided, you know, a list or anything like that. I think The Guardian, Josh Taylor, did a good dig trying to figure out which ones had gone. He found at least six videos from Sky hosts Alan Jones, Rowan Dean, Rita Panahai um, had been deleted for violating YouTube policies about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, promoting them as treatments Mm. for COVID-19. That was according to Josh's reporting. But yeah, it, it's an interesting phenomenon, but if as long as they don't uh, do anything else for the next 90 days, they'll be just fine because, of course, YouTube has a three-strikes policy. It is relatively unusual for a major media outlet to, to be affected by this, but then it's all kind of... Any, anyone, like, at the smaller scale doing their own content will know very well, surely, that, that YouTube just will occasionally hit you with a strike. There's one I love today. This this happened just before we started recording. Um, Liam O, Liamasaur on uh, on the Twitter, 10 years ago he uploaded a 50-second video to YouTube. It's one of those little drinky bird things. It goes in the water and then goes up. And him just going, do it, do it, because it's he's waiting for it to happen. So anyway, that's been age-restricted. Today, oh, how bizarre! Uh, breaks community guidelines. Doesn't doesn't say how. Do it, do it, do it, do it. I mean, it does sound a bit porny when he's saying "do it, do it." Come on! And building up to, shall we say, a climax when it eventually happens. Come on. 
it's no, it's it's not. And one of Ben Grubb, journalist Ben Grubb at the Sydney Morning Herald, he has one that's been age restricted today, and it's police arresting and restraining someone at Bondi Beach. So, ah, uh, I I don't know. I, how re- how reliable are these systems? He says, knowing what the answer is. <laughs> well, there have been ongoing issues with the transparency, I suppose, of how YouTube moderates its platform, as well as all the other social platforms. You know, YouTube's not unique in this. Mm. I do think uh, YouTube can be a bit of a black box, though. There certainly seems like I haven't, you know, measured it, but it does seem like there's often a lot more reporting about Facebook, about Twitter. It's a little easier actually to track those platforms because they're dealing often with words. Of course, you can share images and video there too. But YouTube is a little harder to monitor because it is video and we still are not great at creating moderate, moderating, uh, monitoring tools rather for, for just straight video. So mm. You have to work pretty hard to get a good sense of it. So there is this issue at YouTube of uh, potentially like a lack of scrutiny of YouTube still. And then, of course, transparency issues about how YouTube makes these decisions. I mean, does is this happening, this kind of uh, age restrictions on these videos you were just mentioning because potentially of an AI system and the way they're kind of trying mm. to preemptively get in front of problematic material by using kind of keywords maybe, um, certain phrases, all kinds of things like that. I mean, and then at the end of the day, when it comes out with such a significant decision, such as the uh, decision to restrict Sky News for seven days, not telling us exactly why and wherefore. You know, uh, the argument here is that they don't want to give too much detail in why things get banned because it will just help people get around those bans. You know, that's the kind of eternal argument. Uh, uh, that's the old many eyes theory in cybersecurity with, yes, don't don't reveal your source code because people will work out the flaws. And we go, well, they're going to do that anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, overall, the moderation sort of issue is a really interesting one. I mean, it, moderation is everything at this point. If you create any kind of content online, you will have to come up with some moderation policy because every there will mm. always be a problem. Someone will come up with a a reason and will use your platform to post horrible things, full stop. So all these platforms have had to struggle with this. But it was interesting to see last year the the strictness of, I suppose, the policies around COVID-19 on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and the rest. I guess for them health misinformation just seemed far more clear-cut than misinformation about politics and, and mm. topics that have become politicised like, say, climate change. Um, because YouTube doesn't allow content about COVID-19 that poses a serious risk of what it calls egregious harm. So if you're encouraging people to use treatments that are not, uh, you know, have not been okayed by your local regulator, if you're promoting things that prevent COVID-19 when they really don't, or that might encourage the transmission of disease or put people in sort of positions where disease could be transmitted, that all sensibly gets taken down. But you don't see Mm. such clear-cut guidelines about, as I said, other types of misinformation that are really prevalent on these platforms. Well, and freedom of speech applies most appropriately to political speech. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's we kind of hold that up as the prime example. And here in Australia, of course, where we don't have a legislated uh, right to freedom of speech, there is the, the High Court decision which says we have an implied right to freedom of political communication. <laughs> Rather than speech, it's a it's a it's an interesting little term, uh, but yes, that is, you know, much harder, isn't it? One one person's bold proposal is another person's extremism. Yeah, um, we do have a pretty uh, horrible discussion of free speech in the media here. I think there's a lot, you know, people wield the free speech flag, you know, when it's conven- politically convenient to them, not really placing it in the Australian legal context as you as you've just laid out sort of not recognising the way that Australian law puts all kinds of restrictions on speech. In fact, the the current coalition government has passed a multitude of laws that restrict speech in various ways. And you might think that's pretty good policy sometimes. You know, there was after the Christchurch terrorist attack, they passed a a law pretty quickly that put uh, kind of uh, 
required technology companies to take down content uh, that showed mm, a and, and with content. really strict time frames on it too. Exactly. They had to be able to 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 work quickly. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> that's the perennial argument about where do you draw the line, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et although. You know, you know, the Christchurch massacre was pretty clearly a violent act of terrorism, so Absolutely. that's very easily beyond the line. That's where Sky News and, of course, Professor Bolt uh, himself uh, will will run that up, and even that clip there was running so close to just straight-up racism and, and one might argue inaccuracies, uh, shall we say, about the way other media outlets behave. On... A related topic, and and we need to sort of you know get to this one and then wrap it up. I think it's it's not a pretty one. Andrew Bolt is certainly at one end of the political spectrum of broadcasters and media operators, but even further down past him is the world of online video that that is definitely being banned by YouTube and pretty much everywhere else in the mainstream. But there are other places now. Last week, uh, the ABC's magnificent background briefing looked at one of those people, a young Australian guy uh, who's now in the United States. He works under the name Catboy Cammy. Uh, here's a snippet from that program. Today, Catboy Cammy's name is synonymous with his most extreme content. His videos are a mix of racial stereotypes and hardcore shock tactics. In one, he dresses up in blackface and an Afro wig and while brandishing a gun, he scours the video chat platforms for black kids to taunt. Shoot, shoot, I dare you. You dead In another, he dresses up as a policeman and kneels on an effigy he's made in the likeness of George Floyd. <laughs> uh, officer, I can't breathe! <laughs> Hate groups and racists flock to his content sharing his videos and posting propaganda and links to their own groups. You can literally watch as they channel his audience towards political action motivated by race hate. Ariel, you're a researcher on this episode, weren't you? Yes. And it's fantastic, uh, and the whole team deserve praise for it. This guy, Catboy Cammy, what's his story? Well, it, it, it's a complex one, I suppose. Uh, as I talked about in the program with Alex Mann, uh, I came across his content digging into some of the far-right telegram channels in Australia, just looking through them for a different project, actually, when I came across his videos. And it was a video of him doing blackface, essentially, on a platform called Omegle, which is kind of like chat roulette. You might remember it from back in the day where you... Uh, for, for, for young folk, yes. <laughs> oh, hang on. You're young, Ariel. Hang on. <laughs> yes, that was where you would just be connected in video chat to another random, random person. person. Yeah. Yeah, so he was on Omegle with, this, with blackface on, um, basically confronting children who were also on Omegle with blackface saying you know, pretty racist and abhorrent things on that platform. And so that video kind of shocked me. It also shocked me that he had an Australian accent because this trend Mm. of um, doing a racist bit, I suppose, on Omegle is not a unique one. There are other people that do it, but they're largely, I've largely seen them from Europe and the United States actually, or North America from Canada as well. And so it surprised me this guy had an Australian accent. And so I started looking into him and it seemed like he had been streaming, growing a kind of audience while he'd been in Australia and then showed up in the United States and started to be in videos with some of the more significant figures of the far right in the United States, so Nick Fuentes of America First, um, Baked Alaska, who's also a sort of live streamer. Both of those men were there in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Uh, Baked Alaska subsequently was arrested actually um, as well as a variety of other figures, you know, doing interviews with the likes of uh, Richard Spencer, the whole range. Mm-hmm. And I guess mm-hmm. it was intriguing uh, to both Alex and myself to track that journey and to look at the way the Australian Australian figures, I mean, we do here in Australia like to think of right-wing extremism as something that happens over there, you know, something that happens in uh. Europe or something that happens in the United States and that something like January 6th or, you know, could never happen here. But we thought it was an important story to tell because it showed how 
the internet really allows those conversations to take place across borders and the ways that Australians can also contribute content into this ecosystem as well. And it's worth remembering, like, the the guys that this kid, and he's quite young, isn't he? He's yes. How old is he now? Early 20s. Yeah, um, he's hanging around with, with some guys who are seriously of political concern but also have a huge audience. That's and right, yeah. They're, they're taking him under their arm and going, hey, this kid, he tells good jokes and has a sense of humour. And I go, yeah, as we've just heard, yeah, that's that's – uh, yeah, I don't know whether you could call that a sense of humor. It is, I, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm pausing because, you know, I'm known for doing. Look, I, you know, certain kinds of humor have to be con, have to be are confrontational. That is a style of sure. humor, dark humor, etc. But this is just, nah, mm. nah. This is, I mean, it's there is shocking humor. And shock value, and then there's just what the fuck, you know? Mm. What, what, what is what is this uh, about? <sighs> yeah, there's an interesting conversation being had by a lot of different academics, you know, and researchers and journalists around the weaponization of humor in the far right. You know, it it is humor is often by by necessity somewhat transgressive. You know, it pushes lines, it pokes at our foibles at our sort of <laughs> darkest places but this use and of that's what satire is for that's it's yes it's mm. purpose it, it, oh. yeah but this use of humor um to mask i suppose the spread of far-right propaganda is certainly a trend uh, there's a great book by cynthia miller idris called hate in the homeland if people are interested um she looks into this quite a bit of the sort of she looks at the spaces physical and virtual where people are kind of introduced to hateful content where there's sort of the, the path of radicalization can begin and she does feel uh, and explore in her book especially for young people how this kind of you know hu- these videos which are put up you know characterized as transgressive humor if you get offended you're just soft or you know mm. are potentially at a beginning point you're just woke yeah yeah are, are, are uh. an entry a potential entry point of course there won't be an entry point for everybody but for some people they may be. And when you look into uh, these kinds of communities that are trying to use this quote-unquote transgressive or confrontational humour, sometimes they are quite honest that they're using it to red peel people, you know, to introduce people to concepts around race hate, around anti-Semitism, around hatred of LGBTQ people, you know. Sometimes the uh, line is not masked at all. One thing that fascinated me in this Doco about Catboy Cammy is is right towards the end. There's that question of is he consciously doing this? Is this a is this all an act because he wants to get the attention? Because he does state his aim to be as popular as PewDiePie, who has millions and millions of uh, uh, followers and viewers, and is a, really quite an obnoxious character. There's clearly a psychological need to have attention in there somewhere. I shouldn't try to be an amateur psychologist on that, but there's, there's, that's explored in the program. But at that end, that question of is, is this all part of an act or is he genuinely that uh, far down those, those, uh, those racist beliefs. What do you think? What do you? Where, where is? Where do you sit on this? Well, I also try to avoid, you know, armchair psychology. So, <laughs> <laughs> especially yeah. um, when I'm being recorded. Uh, yeah, so, okay, fair point. <laughs> so I think I will no one say that. This podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Um, <laughs> it really. I guess I don't always think that's the important question at the moment. I mean, I think it's you know very interesting to speculate about, and I certainly think about it myself. But at the end of the day, does it matter whether he truly believes it or not when that content is what it is, you know, and the impact it could have is X, Y, Z, you know. I don't know that we need to worry too much about how serious he is if we're concerned about the impact it could have, if that makes sense. Mm. It it does make sense and and I think that's explored really well in the doco. So, look, 
as always, people know I link to everything we mention in the podcast. So even you mentioned a book before, I'll look that up and make awesome. sure we get that in the notes. Um, background briefing, ABC Radio, the episode is titled A Far Right Troll's Journey from an Ipswich Bedroom to Global Infamy. It contains a milkshake, two milk, no, milk, it contains milk, anyway. So Ariel Bogle, what's in, what else is in the pipeline for you? Well, I have a few reports coming out very soon, actually. Uh, we have one uh, about the disinformation industry in the Asia-Pacific, which might Ooh. be an interest. Ooh, and then I also have a far-right paper myself coming out, hopefully That's sometime in August. That's about the far-right, not... Not about this of guy. The, of the far-right. <laughs> not of the far-right. It's about, um, some of the, about some of the far-right groups here and the platforms they're using. Fantastic. Oh, look, I'm looking forward to them. Ariel Bogle, thank you so much for spending thank some you. time. Of course. I'm going to say it again. That episode of Background Briefing on uh, Catboy Cammy was just amazing. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, some bits of it are pretty confronting and you wonder how the world can generate people like that. Mick Fong, I haven't forgotten you. Trigger word, tourist. I've just been um, having a Saturday afternoon um, gin and tonic, as you do, and it occurred to me that tourist is is one of those irregular nouns. Like, I'm a traveller exploring the world. You're a tourist gawking at my hometown and cluttering the place up. And that got me thinking about how here, as, as I chatted with Ariel just then, will we get to be tourists again, travellers again? I don't, I don't know. And that got me thinking about how important uh, it's all been to shaping a lot of my understanding of the world. Despite some of the zooming around that I've done in, in more recent years, I actually only left Australia for the first time in 2007 when I was years old, relatively late uh, in one's age by uh, young people's standards, uh, but by people of, uh, well, my generation and the one before, um, absolutely normal. I mean, most people didn't travel internationally. It was incredibly expensive and or time-consuming. That first trip in 2007 was to Thailand with apostrophe Pong, of course. So those of you who know that we were together back then. And I've, I've linked on the, the podcast webpage to a series of blog posts I did back when blog posts were a thing. Remember blogs? Uh, which I, I called Unreliable Bangkok. I mean, we went back to his hometown, met, met parents and all that sort of thing. Uh, and... I call it unreliable Bangkok because I like the idea of travelling but having unreliable travel memoirs. Like, you don't keep a fucking log of everything you do, but you, you, you make notes and then you reflect upon it. And it's, it's an interesting series of posts. Even now I look back at them. They're not very long, but they've just got little titles like Smell. For example, it was... The first time I, I, you know, stepped out and it was a tropical uh, river delta city, so it had a certain smell about it. Um, Polite was another post, which I love because I noticed that the the street sweepers, uh, usually old women uh, who who kept the streets clean at night, just left their their broom and their dustpan kind of leaning against... uh, a, a lamppost against an electricity pole overnight and then, like, kept, kept you know, picked it up the next morning and went back to work. And it occurred to me, you know, in, in Australia, like, you wouldn't do that. You'd have to lock it in place because some drunken asshole would throw it in the river, right? I mean, uh, in Bangkok, it's, it's like, no, why would why would anyone do that? Um it was, it was those observations about all the little things in society that, that perhaps we take for granted that mark the difference between places. Anyway, I'll link to that. 
That was in 07. I kind of I kind of miss that because I really do love Bangkok. I've only been there th- three times and they're relatively short trips. But having had a Thai partner for a decade uh, and connected with friends and family and, and so on, uh, and still those of you who follow me on Twitter know I still spend a bunch of time in Thai town in Sydney, um, I've absorbed a bit of the mindset, shall we say, uh, which I suppose it makes me one of those older white men who thinks he's discovered the exotic East, which uh, I most certainly haven't. No, that's that's not what that's all about. I'm looking forward to being a tourist again. Sometimes I'm a traveller, but let's face it, most of the time I'm a tourist and and, and I won't pretend to understand the world. And, and that's that's kind of what I love about it. I love the fact that there are just so many little surprises i've also i'd I'd forgotten that these were a thing i've i've also linked to um uh to some of pong's photos of me uh in bangkok back in 2007 uh you know i do look a bit younger obviously you know time time mate it is 16 years ago after all and quite a few uh, quite a few whiskies under the bridge uh, and kilograms on the waistline and all of that, but that's time, eh? Uh, thank you, Mick Fong, for, for triggering that thought. That's what trigger words are about, so do send them in. They don't have to be big, fancy words. So those of you who are owed trigger words, do send them. And, of course, uh, in the next couple of days, don't forget Tuesday, this Tuesday, what's 7, 8, 9, 10th of August. Get them in by lunchtime because we'll be talking about the pandemic and health messaging and all of that. That's all the edict for now, of course. I've already told you what's coming up in uh, the forthcoming episodes. So let me just say, once again, thank you to everyone who supports the pod go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip and consider pouring in uh, a few dollars. Until next time, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pmedic is a Skank Media production. Sorry.